So I, I learned two things about myself this weekend. Um, first is uh, my son was invited to his first boy-girl party. And it was themed. And they asked me um, if I could help them with their costumes. They said, we have to dress like we're, we're from the 90s. And so I realized that I might be much older than I think I am. And I found myself tight-rolling my son's jeans and uh, picking out a few of my old shirts. I never thought my wardrobe would ever be a costume. Um, some of yours, but not mine. Um, so I learned that I'm much older than I think. And the second was I learned that it's okay to cry at Disney movies. Um, that was the road to Terabithia. How many people have seen it? Um, I highly recommend it. I would not, uh, I will not spoil it for you um, to why I cried, but I did. Um, but it's a great movie, but it got me thinking because it posed some great questions of faith for me. And so I want to ask you some questions. And I want you to think. And so if you need to close your eyes to focus or just kind of, you know, look into the lights. or, um, But just, just I want you to kind of respond in your mind to, to some of these questions. First is, when the dust settles in the quiet of your own heart, what kind of God do you really believe in? What is God like for you? Is God good? Is God angry? Is God wanting to punish vile sinners? Is God loving? Is God merciful? Do you even believe there is a God? Do you believe the story of Jesus? Do you believe all of it? Some of it? None of it? Just, just maybe pieces of it. Do you struggle believing it? Or did believing come easy for you? Were you convinced at an early age and never strayed? What questions, if any, remain? And where do you go for your answers? Or do you even care to seek those answers? Are you afraid to ask the questions? Were you told that it's in the Bible, so don't question it? The Bible says that I believe it, that settles it. Did your faith or your church experience even allow you to question it? And if you began to question it, are you afraid of what you might find? Were you taught that questioning too much was not safe for Christians? That it would make God very disappointed and perhaps even angry with you? Has your faith or your beliefs changed over time? Do you still believe the same things you did before? Has the God of your childhood evolved? Have you evolved? Has your faith progressed? Do you have more questions now or fewer? And do the answers that you once gave for those questions that you had about God still work. Peter N. says, when once settled questions become unsettled, then our life narratives are upset, and we don't like that. Can faith and doubt exist together? Can you believe something and question that something at the same time? What if we don't know the answers to our questions about God 
Do we need to have those answers? Do we need to be right? Is the goal getting correct answers? Is it right thinking? And at the end of the day, is your faith about being right, believing right, thinking right? These are the questions that I want us to deal with today as we finish, yes, finish, Matthew's story of God told by a tax collector. But to finish, I want to go back to the start. The book of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. And compared to the other three Gospels, Matthew is the most comprehensive record record of teachings of Jesus. And so in other words, not just what Jesus did, but a record of what he said and what he taught. And Matthew's gospel ends with the same, uh, the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples. And it's known as the Great Commission. And a couple of things uh, that I find in here, and I want, I want to start here. Two years ago, we began in this verse. And today, we're going we're gonna to finish in the same verse. It's Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. It says this, Jesus came forward and addressed his beloved disciples says, I am here speaking with all the authority of God who has commanded me to give you this commission. Go out and make disciples of all nations, ceremonially washing them through baptism in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then disciple them. Form them in the practices and postures that I have taught you and show them how to follow the commands I have laid down for you. And I will be with you day after day to the end of the age. A couple of things Matthew wanted us to get when he wrote this. First, this was the final declaration of who Jesus is, who Jesus was. It was his final instructions, who we are and what we're supposed to do. And his final directions for us, how we are to do and what we are supposed to long for. This was the heart of Matthew. This is the reason he set out to write the gospel. So that in mind, I want to start to fill in some of the blanks here. Most of these books in the New Testament weren't written for 20 to 30 years after the cross and resurrection. Some more like 50 or 60 years after the fact. We know that Jesus died roughly 30 to 35 AD, Anno Domini or or Common Era. We know in the 50s that Paul writes his books. In the 60s, Paul, Peter, James are killed. And in the 70s, Gospel of Mark is written. And so Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, but it's definitely not the first book of the New Testament written. In fact, it wasn't even the first Gospel written. The book of uh, Matthew wasn't written until 80 or 90 CE, the same time as Luke. And this is after Paul has gone on all of his missionary journeys Paul has written all his letters to the churches and to the people. Churches have been planted and they're beginning to grow. The only problem is, is the remaining eyewitnesses are now dying or being killed. And so it makes perfect sense to start writing some of these things down. Christians are being persecuted. Eyewitnesses are being killed. Men like Matthew are beginning to write down uh, the story of Jesus. Why write it down? To preserve it. Like, we need to get this thing right, right? Matthew, he's saying, I'm going to die someday, and I want you to know something. I want you to tell this story to the next generation. 
They weren't sitting down to write the Bible, like many of us may have thought. The gospel writers, Paul, the others, they did not think that they were writing Holy Scripture. They were not writing prescriptions for 2018. They were writing down a story that they watched, experienced, or they heard for themselves. And Matthew had a, a, a few purposes and a few audiences that he was writing to. He definitely wanted to defend or communicate the authority of Jesus. This was a, an apologetic. That this was the promised king. This was the Messiah that they'd been waiting for. They had been expecting this since the garden. The one who would come through Moses, through David. The prophets spoke of this one. And so as a Jew, who Matthew was, to reach the Jews who he was communicating to, he was arguing that Jesus was their Messiah. That this was to fulfill what the prophets spoke about. 16 times in Matthew's gospel, very rare in any other gospels, but that phrase is one very, uh, or that one very similar to that. This was Matthew fulfilling the first half of the Great Commission. That this is the guy. This is the guy that the world, not just the Jews, was promised. He has the authority. And second, Matthew wanted to teach, to record what Jesus did and what Jesus said, that Matthew was a Christ follower now. He's writing to other Christ followers. And this is the first collections of writing, emphasizing the direct teachings of Jesus is that the churches would use in their, their manual, their handbook, 60% of the gospel of Matthew is the direct words of Jesus. Some of your Bibles have the red letters. And so often you'll hear phrases like, when he finished saying these things. You find the most comprehensive record of the Sermon on the Mount. This gospel was designed to instruct the people of God about the person of Jesus. To teach other followers the things that Jesus taught. And it was Matthew's attempt to fulfill the second half of the Great Commission, to go and make disciples. The first half is fulfilled. Here's the proof. All authority has been given to Jesus. The second half, go and make disciples. To teach them all that I've commanded. This was Matthew's purpose in writing. And so a quick summary of the story. Matthew opens with the genealogy of Jesus. He traces back from the father's side. This was very important for the Jews. The son of David, the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. That would be very important. That Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Word gets out to King Herod that he may have competition for his throne. So he orders that every boy under the age of two be killed. Jesus and Mary, they escape with Jesus to Egypt. And ultimately make it back to Nazareth. Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Then the story fast forwards to Jesus, roughly 30 years of age. He shows up at the river Jordan where John is baptizing people. And Jesus is baptized by John. And the voice from God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved And then from there, Jesus enters into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. And Jesus refused to listen to that voice of the enemy and instead listens to the voice that has called him the beloved. And out of the wilderness, he goes right into community and he begins to choose some people to follow him. These fishermen, not everyday disciples, 
These are just regular guys. They don't even believe or know who Jesus was. And Jesus goes up on the hillside and he gives this famous sermon on the mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek and gentle. Those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful and the peacemakers. And then he says, you are the beloved. You are the salt of the earth. You are the beloved. You are the light to the world. And then he says, I I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say. You've heard it said regarding divorce, but I say to you. And then he says, when it comes to oaths, keep your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. He says, love your enemies. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then he teaches them how to give and how to pray and how to fast. He teaches them spiritual disciplines. He says, don't store up treasures in heaven. Don't worry about things. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then he says to close that in everything. Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus then steps off the hillside. He steps off the stage and does exactly what he just preached. His first act, according to Matthew, is that he heals a man with leprosy. And not just heals him from the disease, but restores him back to the community that turned him away. He went to the outsider, the outcast. And he restored him. And then he turns and he heals uh, the servant of a Roman soldier, the outsider, the guy outside the faith. He was outside the chosen. And then he goes back home and he heals Peter's mother-in-law, an insider, someone in the family, an outcast, an outsider, an insider. Jesus came for all. And then in chapter nine, we read about where Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, right? Matthew, the tax collector. And that's important. Matthew puts that in there to to give context. This wasn't Matthew, the school teacher, or Matthew, the barista, or Matthew, the fisherman, or Matthew, the carpenter. But this was Matthew, the tax collector, one of the most despised people in that time. They had their own category. There were sinners, and then there were tax collectors, right? And so Matthew isn't hiding anything in this story. And then Jesus goes full-time into healing and preaching and teaching and doing miracles. And then he starts a new style of communicating with his messages. He begins to speak in parables. The disciples came to him and they asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. 
This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this, people's hearts have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. And then Jesus feeds the 4,000. And he continues to teach about the kingdom of heaven and how it shows up on earth as we learn what it means to live together and to love one another. And then Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. He begins to address some things that are to come, some end times stuff. He gets a little apocalyptic here, foreshadowing what would happen to Jerusalem. Great messages on the rapture and hell uh, and how neither of them may be what you've been taught to believe. Those are on the website. Chapter 26, Jesus has one last meal with his disciples before the cross. Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested, crucified, and buried. And that's where we left off last week. And today, chapter 28, the final part. Let's read it together. It says, After the Sabbath, as the light of the next day, the first day of the week, crept over Palestine, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb to keep vigil. Earlier there had been an earthquake. A messenger of the Lord had come down from heaven and had gone to the grave. He rolled away the stone and sat down on top of it. He vibratively glowed. He was vibrating with light. His clothes were, were light, white like transfer, uh, transfiguration, like fresh snow. The soldiers guarding the tomb were terrified. They froze like stone. The messenger spoke to the woman, to Mary Magdalene, and to the other Mary messenger of the Lord. Do not be afraid. I know you are here keeping watch for Jesus who was crucified. But Jesus is not here. He was raised, just as he said to his disciples. Just as he said he would be, come over to the grave and see for yourself. And then go straight to his disciples and tell them he's been raised from the dead and he has gone on to Galilee. You'll find him there. Listen carefully to what I am telling you. The women were both terrified and thrilled and they quickly left the tomb and went to find the other disciples and give them the outstandingly good news. But while they were on their way, they saw Jesus himself. Jesus, greeting the women, said, Rejoice! The women fell down before him, kissing his feet and worshiping him. Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Tell them I will meet them there. And as the women were making their way to the disciples, some of the soldiers who had been standing guard by Jesus' tomb recovered themselves, went to the city and told the chief priest everything that had happened. The earthquake just after dawn, the heavenly messenger and his commission to the Marys, the chief priest gathered together all the elders, an emergency conference of sorts. They needed a plan. They decided the simplest course was bribery. They would pay off the guards and order them to say that the disciples had come in the middle of the night and had stolen Jesus' corpse while they slept. The chief priests promised the soldiers they would run interference with the governor so they would, soldiers wouldn't be punished for falling asleep when they were supposed to be keeping watch. The guards took the bribe and spread the story around town. And indeed, you can still find people today who will tell you that Jesus did not really rise from the dead, that it was a trick, some sort of sleight of hand. Verse 16, the 11 disciples, having spoken to the Marys, headed to Galilee, to the mountain where they were to meet Jesus. 
When the disciples saw Jesus there, many of them fell down in worship as Mary and the other Mary had done. But a few hung back. They were not sure. And who could blame them? Jesus came forward and addressed his beloved disciples. The disciples don't know what to think or how to act. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Jesus says, I am here speaking with all authority of God who has commanded me to give you this commission. Go out and make disciples in all the nations. Ceremonially wash them through baptism in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then disciple them. Form them in the practices and postures that I have taught you and show them how to follow the commands I have laid down for you. And I will be with you day after day to the end of the age. Verse 17, when the disciples saw Jesus there, many of them fell down and worshiped, but a few hung back. The King James says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. Some worshiped, but some doubted. Like these were the disciples of Jesus. This was the end of their time with Jesus. They had learned everything they they needed to learn. They were graduating, right? They're now being sent into the world. And some doubted. Like if I were Jesus, I, I might be a little bit annoyed with these guys, right? Like what's wrong with you? Are you serious? I just rose from the dead. That's it. There's nothing left in my bag. I'm all out of tricks, right? I can't top the resurrection, guys. That's all I got. Still some doubted. Well, a couple of things that stick out to me that I think Matthew wanted us to catch here. The first is in verse 16, he says, the 11. 11. I think Matthew says this intentionally to communicate that things aren't exactly good right now. There's only 11 of us here. One of us is missing. One of us is no longer here. And some of us are, are unsettled about that. Some of us are, are, are not sure we're all in with the risk factor here. Just a chapter ago, there were 12 of us. We were like brothers. We're, we're still like brothers, but we're one down. We're short one. One of our brothers is gone. Why? What for? What's going on here? And the other part of this, and I appreciate this in Matthew, is what he included there in the end. Like if this was chapter 14, we read that the disciples doubted, right? Jesus says, ye of little faith, why do you doubt me? I get it. That makes sense, right? They're just getting to know Jesus, right? We're only 14 chapters in, right? For for Matthew, he was just six chapters in. Five. Verse 14, or chapter 14, just getting to know him. 14 chapters later, the disciples still doubted. They've seen miracles and healings and signs and wonders and teaching. Some worshiped and some doubted. Well, maybe Matthew put this here to validate everything he said up to this point. Like, Like if he was making this stuff up, this is where I think he would probably lie. It's not a good marketing strategy to show up at the end of the story and there were still that some that didn't believe it, right? And not just some people, but the disciples still doubted. Like if you were trying to sell this Jesus thing, right? It's not the best way to do it. Yeah, we were with him. Yeah, we saw him heal a blind guy. 
Yeah, he fed 5,000 people with five loaves, two fish, man. We saw him alive one day, one day. And then he died on a cross, right? And then a day later, he resurrected from the dead. We don't believe it, but you should. What I think Matthew is doing here is exactly what Jesus wants him to do. Show us what it means to be fully human, to be fully alive, to understand that, to really believe there are going to be times when you really doubt. To be certain of things is to be okay with uncertainty. To hold on to your faith means to have open hands. That there will be moments of clarity, black and white, certainty, uncertainty. And there will be moments when you don't know up from down. Authentic spirituality is moving into the fullness of life. And faith exists alongside of doubt. People are messy. And our faith is messy. And the history of our faith is, is wrought with mess. And the power of the gospel and the power of Jesus that he leads us into what it means to be fully human. And so many of us, we find ourselves going through seasons of deconstruction of our faith, right? Like there's these these phases, we've talked about before, these boxes of our faith. And the first box, the first phase is, the first moment is construction. We begin to build our faith and we put God in a box. We start building things and we're laying a foundation we're learning basic truths about him. And this is where many of us who grew up in church, those of us from the Bible Belt, traditional churches, conservative churches, contemporary churches, we understand this phase. I spent most of my life in this phase. Those that grew up in the same traditions as me, we were taught to live in this box. This is all we knew. God fit in this box. This is the faith that was given to us as a child or maybe our parents' faith. This is where we learn to say that the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Even though most of us have no idea that the Bible said it. Or if it says it at all, or even if we could find it. And if you ask, well, God will be angry. So don't ask. It's in there. We all start with God in this box. This is where we insist that there's order. There's laws. There's rules. There's doctrine. There's beliefs. Even if it's a false sense of order especially when it's challenged by your own personal experiences. It doesn't add up, but nonetheless, this is a box and I'm happy in here and I'm safe in here. And then along comes the postmodern era. Now everyone wants to deconstruct everything, right? This is why I don't believe that. This is why I don't believe this. This is no why I no longer believe this or there or, or any of this. This is a cynical life sometimes. It's a skeptical view of life and faith. We don't believe the stories anymore. Here's the problem with with both of those. Neither the God box or the deconstruction part of it are the places that we want to live or stay very long. But we choose to, to live in one of those places anyways. The God box, we don't ask questions. Deconstructions, we won't believe the answers. The God box, we won't question what we were told is true. And the deconstruction, we won't listen even if it was true. But the goal of our spiritual life is meant to be lived not in either of those places. Richard Rohr refers it as the third box. Or some others call it reconstruction or reorder, the third phase. 
But unfortunately, there's no, there's no direct flight from the first box to the last box. It must go through the second box. And he says, he goes on to say that the full experience of humanity, the full experience of faith, of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is when we allow grace and life and love and friendship and forgiveness, when we allow all of that to lead us from the God box through deconstruction and into reconstruction. That this is the complete story of God told to us in our sacred text. Genesis through the Gospels. There was law and order and then life happened and it brought disorder. And Jesus came with a new order. There was law and sacrifices that would be pleasing to God or at least our understanding of who we thought God was. And then the prophets came and they messed everything up. And they said, guys, you're doing it wrong. God doesn't want your sacrifice. You're missing the point. You're missing God. And so God sent Jesus not to change God's mind about us, but to change, God, to change our minds about who God is. That Jesus came to reorder our lives, to understand it's about loving God and loving others, that this is how we should live and this is why we believe. And after all of that, some worshiped and some doubted. Our faith journey should end up in the third, the third phase, the third box. But it's extremely important that we experience the first and second box along the way. But some of us are afraid to leave, to take God out of the box that we put him in. It feels like we're being unfaithful. It's not right to question and doubt. I'm, not, I'm no longer a Christian if I leave the first box. But here's the reality. If you were honest, the first box works great as a kid, maybe a teenager, a new believer. It holds us together. It gives us focus, gives us direction, gives us zeal. We get our righteousness. There's nothing wrong with being in the first box. The problem is when you choose to live there. Because when you and I experience life, when we are confronted with the world, what the answers were in box number one don't work. If we were honest with ourselves, we still have questions and doubts. What we were taught in the first box doesn't make sense. It doesn't answer all of our questions. We have to grow up. We have to suffer reality. We have to get on the cross with Jesus. Only through his death do we find his resurrection. And again, the problem, if we were raised to live in the first box, we may miss that we need to teach people to get out of there and get into the third box. But to go through box number two, to deconstruct some of our faith and beliefs. And it's important to say that we, we can't start in the second box. It's a real problem with today's youth and people new to the faith. We want to start with deconstruction. But we need to start in the first box. We need to start with the stories of our faith. We need to read the stories, teach them to others, and tell them the way that you were told. We all need this basic order and structure, uh, the purpose to life first. But preface the story with this. This is a story. And God is going to tell you something about himself in that story. And God is inviting you into that story. And God wants to move around inside of that story. 
But we were taught as kids to not think, not to not ask. But this generation, you know it, they're not afraid to ask. But they need the awe and the wonder and the mystery that the story brings. So when you read the story of Adam and Eve, you question, did a snake really talk to Eve in the garden? Did Noah really build an ark? Did Jonah really survive three days in the belly of a great fish? Really? Did the prodigal son really take his inheritance and run off to a distant country and end up eating pig food? And when he went home, his dad threw him a big party. Did that really happen? And this is what you say. It doesn't matter. The story is true. That God loves you no matter what. That nothing can separate you from his love. And you were always the beloved son and daughter of God. And you never stopped being that. And God wants to use this story to remind you that no matter what, you will always be my daughter. And God will always love you. And the story of the prodigal son is that you can't earn it by working in your father's backyard. And you can't lose it by running around in the distant country. You're always my child and I always love you. Doubt will always be a part of the faith. It's what moves us to a new understanding of who God is. Our paths will be marked with moments of confusion, disorientation, doubt. But you need to own it. Be aware of the God box you're living in. One, two, three. You realize that things don't always fit in that box because some doubted. Some pieces of our faith will, will be left unresolved. Some questions we won't find the answers to. The first half of life is about building a strong container. The second half is about discovering the contents the container was meant to hold. Yet far too often, solidifying one's personal container becomes a substitute for finding the contents themselves. That was Richard Rohr. Some worshipped, some doubted. What does Jesus say next to the group? He says, okay, the ones that worship come closer. I want you to go and make disciples. You, you, not you, Thomas, you, you, come. No, he says to all of them, the ones that doubted, to ones that worship, to the ones who doubted, he says, go and make disciples and I will be with you always. To the ones who doubted, he put on mission to go and tell the story. Let me invite the band to join me. What is Matthew? What's his point of telling the story? Why did we spend two years going through this story? So that you would believe. So that the Jewish listener would connect the dots and believe that this was the Messiah. And ultimately, I think he wanted his readers and his listeners to know that doubt is a part of the journey. That questions are a part of the deal. You don't have faith without doubt. They both must exist. And Matthew was saying, it's okay. God is still God. Jesus is still Jesus. 
And instead of just standing still in your fears and doubt, Jesus is inviting you and I to participate in bringing his kingdom here on earth. Do you doubt sometimes? That's okay. In fact, I'm giving you permission to doubt some things. Do you still have questions? That's okay, I do too. This is not and will not be a place that has all the answers. Our God is too big to fully understand. So the goal is not right thinking. It's not correct thinking. It's not getting it right or believing it right. The goal is to follow Jesus. And when we do that, we become fully alive, fully human. So if you have doubts and questions, welcome home. You belong here. And now we will journey together in our pursuit to love God and love others. Next week, we're going to pick up in a new series. We're going to follow along with this book. Uh, it's by Brian McLaren. It's called We Make the Road by Walking. Each week, we'll hit a chapter. There's a few scripture references in each chapter. Um, next week, we're going to start with, with chapter 27. That's, how, that's where we pick up in the calendar year. Um, we're inviting you also to come back on Wednesday for our Ash Wednesday service. It kicks off Lent. Um, we're going to provide you with a calendar uh, of some things to maybe practice during the Lent season. Um, but we invite you to come, like Jody said earlier, 5.30 to 8. You can come into the sanctuary. There will be stations for you to walk around freely on your own um, to experience the story of Lent. As well, stay if you want to or come back at 7 um, or just show up at 7 where we'll have a time of worship together. Um, and then uh, we'll then release you again to experience some of the stations here. But it's something we've done in the past several times, and we want to invite you back to that. But I want, you to, I want to go ahead and invite you to stand. I'm going to pray, and the band's going to play us. One last song we're going to sing together. God, in the next few moments, find us where we are in our anxieties and our fears and our doubts and our struggles and our pain and in our joy. When times that we doubt you're there, we don't feel you, we don't sense you, we don't know there's chaos in life. May us Make us aware of who you are, that you're there, that you love us. That no matter where we go or what we do or what we think, it doesn't separate us from your love. That no matter what, we'll always be the beloved sons and daughters of God. That you always love us. Let us feel you shine as we live this life together. In your name we pray, amen.